Welcome to Farm to Tabor. We're at part two of a two-parter with Patrick Wyben, historian and podcaster at Tides of History. Here we're talking about how a really big part of agricultural history is when fancy people write themselves some laws to control the non-fancy people and make them work on the fancy people's estates. It's a strong, it's a really strong tool of social control. And it also, it speaks to the kind of the maintenance of a social structure in which everybody is supposed to have a place. If you have a peasant who's a vagrant, then they're not tied not just to a place, but to, but to their social superiors. Like, and it's dangerous to have people who aren't tied to their social betters in that kind of society. Like the mere existence of a person like that is a threat. Right. And like, how dare you have options? That's not cool. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it speaks to one of the real ways in which like, the past is just different is like we kind of take for granted the idea of non-hierarchical societies like in which you know people are not bound and tethered to a particular place but like that is not how people in the past thought about things something i've been reading a little bit about that you know if you have thoughts on the matter love to hear them but um i have this theory that two things that define a civilization's ability to like survive is if they can control two things one is shit sewage, you know, <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and the other one is their landlords. Um, if you can cover those two, you're good. If you can't, you're screwed. Um, so kind of going along with this. So ancient China, it's very old civilization. They just have a lot of history. They've been through a lot of stuff and tried a lot of things. And, um, something that was really interesting is I think kind of like roughly around zero AD, you know, give or take 500 years, um, they had a series of internal wars where a couple different dynasties had different territories and they were kind of duking it out for who was going to rule China. And the, the faction that came out on top um, was the one that figured out how to keep their landlords under control because then the peasants and the farmers were not getting taxed to death. And that's the class that you draft for your army. So they had an army that could actually survive and thrive and they had healthy people to throw at the enemy. And uh, the opposing party or parties were kind of running under the, um, the nobility system. And so they had to be nice to their landlords to get political support. And part of the way you do that is you let them abuse their peasantry and extract a lot out of them. And so they had sickly and very few peasants and they lost, their, uh, <laughs> they lost the battles on account of that. And so China has this really old political tradition of you keep your landlords under control. Like that's what the Mandarin system was all about, was having an administrative structure that didn't depend on local landlords and could keep them in check. And that's just really interesting to me because I don't think the West has a whole lot of that. And in so much as we do have it, it's quite recent. There, There's a really, yeah, I mean, there's a good Roman uh, parallel for that in the sense that in the early empire, up to about 200 AD or so, um, the Roman political system had a lot of kind of mutual buy-in between landowners and uh, and kind of higher ups in the political system. So the the real the early Roman Empire was really pretty hands off. Like they ran the whole Roman Empire from the center with a staff of just a few hundred people. Practically all of the central uh, of the administration was carried out by kind of local lo- local elites who Romans were like, "Okay, you can stay in charge here as long as you pay pay the taxes, as long as you administer things properly, and as long as we're not hearing people complain about you." So there's there's kind of the the velvet glove and the iron fist simultaneously. Like if the if it turns out that a local elite is abusing its power, then and somebody writes to the emperor about it, well then that local elite could could kind of lose out in the future. Um, 
So there's there's a strong balance there. But in the late empire, it's much more uh, it's much more bureaucratized, and the local elite is kind of removed from the process of of political power. It's very top down. Um, very everything is very centralized, which leaves local elites outside the political structure, but increasingly able to um, extract from their peasantries. Right. So as the as especially in the West, there has never been an elite wealthier than the late Roman elite in the West, the senatorial elite. They were every one of these families was the equivalent of a small multinational corporation. Like the amount of resources that they had at their disposal, they were untouchable and they could extract and extract and extract and extract. And they did. Um, but that also, but they were also in large part outside the political system, outside the formal structures of the political system, which gave them both a ton of power and no power in the way that they wanted it. So um, this is part of the story of the end of the Roman Empire is families like this is essentially um, deciding that local barbarian warlords were a better bet for them than the, than the Roman state. And they could continue to extract and extract and extract, and they did, um, because a barbarian king is going to let you do that and doesn't care what you do to the peasants on your land, whereas a Roman legal official may. Fascinating. So the kind of the the conventional narrative that you hear, and it's it's rather I think drawn from Gibbons, which is, oh, the Roman Empire fell because they made too many commoner citizens, you know, like and those foreigners. There's some <laughs> xenophobia involved there, and Gibbons was writing in like the 1700s, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a, I mean, he was writing at the same time as Adam Smith. He and Adam Smith were buddies. Like he was, he was part of that kind of, you know, late English enlightenment tradition. Yeah. And I've, I've gotten, at least working in agriculture, you kind of see some stuff like the Jeffersonian ideal, which was put together by this guy who never lived it. He uh, had a lot of slaves doing his work and he was like, but for the peasants, this will be nice. And, um, you kind of, you know, you just kind of look at what they were reading in the ancient Roman texts about what happened to peasant farmers and how they got eaten alive by the estates. And you kind of go, was this a setup? You know what I mean? And it's, <laughs> it's kind of made me suspicious of, uh, you know, stuff written by powdered wig guys. You know what I mean? You, you should be suspicious of the stuff written by powdered wig guys. They had, uh, they had some good ideas and they had some real bad ones yeah. too. Real bad ideas. Like Jefferson had ideas about trade that were not just wrong, but actively damaging. Like he did, he he did not understand on a very fundamental level how trade worked. Yeah, amazing. And then, like, do you have any like shit to talk about Gibbons? Because if you do, I'd love to hear. <laughs> um, I think on the one hand, Gibbon knew the ancient texts better than anybody, maybe before or since. Like he had read everything. Um, the and the way that he knew the texts that were available to him was deeper than practically anybody else ever has. With that said, he also had, like, for him, history was moralizing, right? There was a moral lesson to be drawn, and the moral lessons that he drew from that were not necessarily the ones that were best supported by the evidence that he had available to him at that point. Um, Like, he thought that Christianity, like, tore the civic heart out of the Roman Empire. And that is just basically, as far as anybody else can tell in the present day, not true. Um, that's just that's just not the case. He had ideas about barbarians that would not hold up under present-day scrutiny. He also didn't have access to the just reams of archaeological evidence that we do now. You know, we have centuries of, of excavations of Roman stuff. Like, the Roman world is like Ikea. Like, it's just everywhere. There's tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of material, which lends itself to the present day of kind of having big data available to you and being able to plot things out and having Excel spreadsheets. Like, we can understand the Roman world on that basis in a way that is, would be impossible for Gibbon to do. So, I mean, but even the stuff he did have access to, like he was reading it through his own particular lenses and 
you do not have to like those lenses. Right. Yeah. There's uh, particularly when you're an aristocrat living in that era, there may be certain things that you want to be true. So mm-hmm. <laughs> you may be writing yeah. with them in mind. Yeah, if you're if you're a religious skeptic and you're reading the story and you're trying to write the story of Rome's fall as Gibbon was, like you're probably not going to be too fond of the rise of Christianity. <laughs> right. Yeah. You just have some things you want to get out. Yeah. Um, Off his substantial chest. Fantastic. Yeah. There's just I don't know. It's really interesting to watch, you know, and and kind of learn more about the antebellum American period and how much they really drew off of the ancient Roman example, and uh, like. I don't know. It's it's fascinating because in our traditional narrative, um, you know, the Enlightenment and again, like the kind of the American Revolution and bringing back democracy and all that stuff, it's a very liberalizing influence. But you look at what a lot of the U.S. was actually doing, and it's very much bringing back this slave aristocracy that have been, you know, <laughs> torn away from them by the Middle Ages and by monarchies. And they're like, let's take this back. Let's have a landlord run system. And it's just fascinating to watch. It's this very particularly poisonous strain of American political culture. You know, like I, I really think it's it's poison in the sense that it has seeped into so many facets of our own political system today, like in ways that we're not fully aware of and in ways that often aren't spoken to, you know, like these strains are still there um, in some of their basic assumptions about how things are supposed to work. And we've never fully reckoned with them or their origins or the ways in which they, they tie into these, you know, kind of hoary and hallowed past things that we we think are, you know, pretty good, pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, Western culture has a lot of great stuff in it. You know, Shakespeare, fantastic. Ovid, bring it, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but we also have some dank stuff in our, in our closets and, uh, and we don't talk about that. We're just kind of like, look at this beautiful bust. It's fantastic. You know, we don't really talk about what was happening within those cultures, what powered them, what can we learn, you know, from what they did wrong and, and, there's some inequality involved in bringing that whole thing down and we should be learning about that. But, um, we really want to make it all about art history and and cute statues. So, yeah, it's true. I mean, past societies were brutally exploitative and very openly. So, and this is, you know, this was what I was getting at earlier about hierarchies. Like these were societies in which people were supposed to know their place. Like that was the kind of basic sine qua non of their existence was hierarchy and structure and people at the top staying at the top because that was where they were meant to be. Dang it. You know, and that is, you don't get the, the stuff that we like about those societies is not separable from that kind of basic vision of su- the subjugation of large parts of humanity. Right. And it's, I don't want to tell people like, you can't like art, you can't like ancient stuff, because it's, it's cool. Like, there's some really neat things. There's some great literature, there's great poetry, it tells us a lot about who we are as people and like where we come from and ways to look at things. Um, but also recognize that we live in a very different time when automation exists, and you don't have to make humans do all the grunt work. And that's <laughs> awesome. And, you know, maybe how we could possibly do some things different. And we have these traditions that don't fit with a world in which we don't necessarily need hierarchies with a bunch of people at the bottom. Not that we ever needed it, needed it, because plenty of societies and communities manage to have egalitarianism. Um, But in these big uh, hierarchical cultures, that was considered necessary. And to some extent, we still consider it necessary just because that's our habit. And that may not be very grounded in our current reality. Yeah, it's it's a in lar- in many ways it's a historical hangover. And there are people who I mean, there are people who like hierarchy as hierarchy, you know? I mean, the the it can be for for a lot of people it's kind of comforting to think of a world in which you have a place a defined place within it and that that's that's kind of a beneficial thing. Um 
But that's, that is not the way I look at the world. Yeah, if you're just an overlord of robots, like you're nobody, that doesn't count. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like within the Roman tradition, there was a sense that like if you didn't own slaves, you weren't really somebody who counted or mattered. 100%. You know, like, that was, you know, a man, a man without slaves didn't really count. Or if you were a late medieval aristocrat, um, like you had to have people in service to you. That was what made you an aristocrat. And like those weren't necessarily exploitative bonds, like they were often mutually beneficial ones, but like you had to have people below you in order to in order for your position to to be what it was. Right. Yeah. And it's really fascinating because you talk to farmers to this present day. And um, you know, we talk about consolidation of land and how small family of farmers in the Roman Empire kind of, you know, some of them still managed to hang on, but by and large they went by the wayside. And we have that going on today. It's it's kind of funny because people talk about how family farms, quote, are dying. They've been dying since they started because it's an inherently unstable institution. Uh, <laughs> you know, so like I, I always kind of tell people like, number one, family farms are not sustainable. Number two, if you are a family farmer and it's not working out, don't feel bad. It's doomed. It's not you. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, this is this is one of the really interesting things. I've been reading a lot of uh, American history over the last couple of years for no particular reason. Uh, but uh, the but that's something that stands out in practically every book that's written about kind of agricultural economies in the United States is just the failure rate of family farms has always been super high. Always like and in different regions too. like it was high in kind of the rocky ass soil of Western Massachusetts. It's been high in good soil in the Midwest. It's been high in in like totally untenable soil on the Great Plains. Like the failure rate has always been high because they're capital intensive businesses that require you to that require you to pay for equipment. And if things go wrong, like your margin for error is incredibly small. Right. Yeah, and something that I've noticed as an agricultural professional, and it, it's kind of funny because anytime you propose something different than family farms, it's people automatically go to, you mean corporate farms? Or <laughs> did you mean Soviet collectivization? You're like, there's a lot of ways to do a lot of things. <laughs> uh, and you actually run across, you know, number one, a lot of corporate farms. And then number two, you run across a lot of, you know, for lack of a better word, they're collective, they're employee owned. So you have... Um, actually, some Native American groups doing farming, uh, and they're some of the tightest run farms I've ever seen. Because um, number one, if you're Native in the U.S., you have to get really good at paperwork or you're dead. And, um, you know, Anglo farmers could kind of get through life on handshake deals, and so they kind of got to scoot by without having to deal with a lot of that stuff and, like, official communication and keeping records. And so a lot of the difficulty that Anglo farmers seem to have in tracking with modern life actually came because modern, well, you know, modern life gave them a fairly decent deal. And so as things get harder, they don't have the skills to keep up, whereas native farmers like have had to be gangbusters since day one. Well, something you something you just pointed to there is really interesting. The the idea of record keeping, like if there is a historical constant that I've confined from studying, you know, past uh, past agriculturalists, it's that um, estates and farms that keep records do better because they have a body of data to draw on to see what's working, what's not, where where are we spending money, where aren't we? Um, you see this like with late medieval estate management. There, the 
there was a lot of rational kind of analysis of different needs going on, different needs and different benefits happening. And you see this in Egypt too, in the fourth, fifth, sixth centuries, where we have estate records. It's like they were doing very rational analyses of what their money was doing and where it was going. And there were people making decisions about about all of that stuff. And those were the ones that did better over the long run. Yeah, that's, that's interesting that you mentioned because uh, there's actually a great book that came out really recently called Accounting for Slavery. And it's looking at all these spreadsheets of slave plantations in the West Indies and the U.S. South. And um, they did really detailed record keeping. And it's it's really bad because you're like, this is the one thing that these horrible people did right. And <laughs> we that's the one thing we don't do today. We still have the shitty attitude towards labor. And, um, you know, we're, we're, the U.S. has always kind of had some kind of class of subjugated people. So that tradition's still alive. But we don't keep records. That was like the one good thing they did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's. I, I am familiar with that book, and it's really interesting because it speaks to an, kind of an early sense of the commodification of labor, like and a rational. I mean, too rational, horribly rational approach to how to how to manage and utilize labor. Right. Yeah. And there's. I mean, it's it's really bad because you read through it and you're like, there are so many things that they were doing that actually can be really functional if you transport it to like a decent human environment, like. Um, they would cycle their crops so that some of the year they're growing food when they can't grow their cash crop and that kind of thing. Uh, because multiple revenue streams keeps you alive when conditions are difficult. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that modern farms could learn from. We don't do that so much anymore, the record keeping and just, you know, but the labor is the one thing we kept. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that is really interesting. And I think that's one of the ways in which, you know, speaking to why family farms can, can induce struggle is like, it is easier to do that kind of thing if you have professional managers and a family farm is like, there are so many different things that go into running a farm and, and, you know, doing successful agriculture that like tight management of labor and crop rotation and keeping up with the latest advances and experiments in, in crop science is not necessarily something that a single family or a single person within a family can keep up on and do like, that's it's specialized work. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I think to some extent, um, you know, I mean, you look at other, I don't want to say like collective, but like multi-people, like not single family farming situations. Like we have Hutterites up in Canada on the Great Plains and they're growing wheat in a very short crop season. And it's one of the, you know, just general bulk grains and they're a very low profit crop. And yet they are so successful at it that they actually had to come to an informal agreement with various Canadian governments of we're only going to have one Hutterite colony per X square miles because the local uh, other farmers were like panicking that the Hutterites were going to take over. And it's, it's really interesting because they're working in a difficult market, but because they're actually working together with more than one family's worth of people, they're able to actually cover their bases and do stuff like that. And it's, it's not family farming, but it's not corporate farming either. So it's really fascinating to find that there are other forms that work great. I'm fascinated by the Hutterites because there was a community of them in eastern Washington where I grew up, and I actually poured concrete on a, uh, on a in a Hutterite community back when I was like 19 or 20, and I remember driving up there and thinking like, these people just know what they're doing. Like, right. These are really competent people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Like there's, it's kind of a plain church situation, and like the way we sell farming is it's like simple folk and it's just basic and like you know um we kind of have this young man go west like anyone can do it like there's this <laughs> real thing about it's accessible we believe in accessibility farming and it's just not and uh no yeah you get communities like this who know what they're doing 
Yeah, I mean, like, so I just did a couple of episodes on medieval peasants, and I did a lot of deep dives into into kind of the technical aspects of, you know, medieval estate management and what peasants actually did with their time. And it was clear that, like, medieval estate managers, there were some bad ones, but the ones who were good at it were highly skilled professionals who were thinking about, okay, what what markets am I producing for? Um, who is the person that I'm serving and what are their needs? Like this manner that I'm managing has, you know, we can do a lot of different things with this. What do, what do I need to be doing here? How do I rotate through, how do I rotate crops? How do, what, this year I may need to do more of this, the next year I may need to do more of this, depending on kind of market forces and, and, and shifts in price. Uh, and But then individual peasants, too, who had their own kind of small plots of land in addition to farming the Lord's land or providing kind of wage labor, like they, too, were making really rational and informed decisions. But they had little enough land that, like, they could afford to to really invest time and energy in it. But, like, they were smart. Like, they, they were engaging in what were effectively generational best practices for how to use those particular strips of land. Right. Yeah. And this is, this could be a whole different podcast, but you look at farming in the, in the U S and kind of the colonial style of agriculture. And there's a whole bunch of things that break down. Like we have this mindset that family farms are like this tradition from the old country and we're still doing it here. And that's why we're like real Westerners, you know, continuation of culture and all that shit. And it's none of it's true. Like, um, <laughs> of private family land ownership was not really much of a thing for, you know, the petty peasantry. Um, it's completely different environments, so we don't have traditional practices for dealing with American soils and American flora and American weeds and American weather. We don't have that. That is all very new for us. And to a large extent, we failed to adapt, and it's caused a lot of environmental problems. Um, yeah. I have a very dear friend who's an environmental historian of early America who would who would have a lot of interesting things to say to you about that. Beautiful. We should talk. <laughs> <laughs> he would love to. He's a talker. Fantastic. Yeah. I want to, I'm sure there's a bunch of books that you've been reading that I really need to get your reading list from because I need to catch up on a lot of things. Um, I've been working notes to the grindstone for the last 10 or 15 years in agriculture and it's time to get my head above water and take a deep breath. So <laughs> I've got, I've got some suggestions for you. I can, whatever, whatever you're looking for, whether you're, you want to know about the, the grain market in ancient Rome or estate management practices in late medieval England, I got you. Excellent. Fantastic. Yeah. I think like relating to the estate management and professionalism thing, there is a really cool thing in accounting for slavery, like really uncool actually. Um, we kind of had the stereotype that the people doing like the crew management and the slave driving were like white trash you know, like uh, that's who was doing it. And that's why there's this antipathy between poor whites and, and the enslaved people. That must be what was happening, right? But in reality, because record keeping was such a huge part of plantation management, like you had to have literate people be the slave drivers. So they were, you know, not quite elite enough to be their own plantation owners, but they were like educated guys from upper middle class backgrounds. Those are the people doing the slave driving, which is fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's an educated professional class. Uh, that's it, which is, which is deeply fascinating. And they're the people who are, who given the right circumstances, try to move up into that slave owning aristocracy themselves. So like when new land opens up, as you go further West, like those are often the people who manage to scrape together enough capital to move into whatever the next region is. So it's like, so it's like second sons or third sons of, of the big slave owning families, say in South Carolina, who moved to Georgia, but also this kind of elite class of hanger of like plantation hangers on. Right. Yeah. Who are like desperately trying to find a place for themselves. And, um, yeah, there was yeah a lot of the slave, like, excuse me, the, like the slave plantation leadership, 
Um, a lot of it was delegated. Like you had to have some crews of people who were enslaved and you had to have like sub foremen who were enslaved to run that stuff, but kind of like the overarching overseer. Like I don't want to erase like enslaved leadership. Like there were, um, you know, hierarchies and social systems and people trying to like live their life there as well. And just to manage labor, it had to be delegated. Um, but in terms of like who was really like pulling out the stops for record keeping and violence, it was really educated, higher end white boys. Yeah, which like it, it, it has interesting class implications for the modern day South too. Doesn't it? Doesn't Some it just? Real interesting ones. I don't know. That kind of feels like a good end, uh, good note to close out on. <laughs> I don't disagree with you. Amazing. Well, this has been super fun. Yeah, this was great. Thank you very much for having me on. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah, and I'm going to have to catch up on like how many years of your podcast again? <laughs> <laughs> a few, a few. I've got some things that are definitely of interest to you. I've got episodes on the Roman economy. I've got episodes on medieval peasants, kind of life after the Black Death, which also focuses a lot on uh, on peasants and what they were doing. Um, and the medieval economy, early modern economy more generally. But then I also have dives into things like Vlad the Impaler, if that's your jam. That's, that's uh, pretty great, yeah. That's just leisure. That's just <laughs> It's fun right there, but yeah. That's a fun for the whole family, you know? This was such a good one, you guys. I love talking agriculture with historians who look at power plays because they don't romanticize farming. The ancient Romans who were running these latifundia hustles are all dead, so you can just air their dirty laundry all day long and nobody gets hurt. It's so different from the present day where if you're not careful about what you say, you can put a lot of farm workers and other innocent parties at risk. Speaking of which, Patrick and I kept talking and we found out that we actually worked for a lot of the same farmers in central Washington. And we had such a fun chat about what's going on in that region. That's all on Patreon, check it out if you're able. Follow Farm to Tabor on iTunes or SoundCloud and you can find Patrick at his podcast, which is fantastic. It's Tides of History. And thanks so much for listening.